I almost said I'm Riz. You could be. Okay, I'm Riz. I'm Liza. And this is the Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. And finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. We're so funny. We're fucking hilarious. I was listening to last week's episode, this week's episode, now presently when people are listening to this last week's episode on two times speed because I was just trying to like check to make sure that because you were scared that you maybe didn't bleep everybody's name Mm -hmm. out. So I was listening to it at two times speed and we, me and you are even harder to tell apart at two times speed. Like I literally was like, I don't remember saying that. And it's because it wasn't me. I love that. That happens like when it's on regular speed too. Mm -hmm. But at two times speed, it's like there's one bitch talking right now and it's little sleep much reading. My that's one my aunt listens to our podcast. Yes. And the one time she was like, You guys sound so similar, but you know how I tell you apart? And I was like, How? And she said, Liza cusses. And, and I was like, you are so right, Aunt Chrissy. You never do. I just don't really don't feel think. the need to on the pod. I don't know why. It just comes out of me. I'm sorry, Aunt Chrissy. Hey, don't be sorry. Aunt Chrissy don't mind. She don't mind. She's like, I can't control it. Also, if it's possible, people in Ireland swear even more than people in the United States. Good for them. Like, they love to drop an F-bomb, like, after every other word. And I'm like, slay. <laughs> yeah, let it out. Sir, go off. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Irish, Samuel Beckett. Beckett. Oscar Wilde. Two of the best bitches to come out of the country. Of Ireland. I just zoned out. I was looking at a seagull. What was it doing? It was like, it's like golden hour here already. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just flying and it looked kind of pink. Um, and I was just kind of mesmerized by it. That sounds beautiful. Yeah. Um. But should we specifically have the this episode be like Irish theater? Probably, because it's it's it it's Irish theater. It mm-hmm. it literally is. Um. So that's kind of fun. Welcome to Irish theater. Theater. An evening at the Irish theater. Which I don't think these plays would ever be put on the same um, docket, I'm guessing. Like, I don't think you would watch the importance of being... Wait, wait which one did you end up reading? Waiting for Gatto. Okay, yeah. I don't think you would watch... 
the importance of being earnest and waiting for Goodell um, back to back. No. I'm so curious to hear your thoughts because I've never read that. I've only read Not I and Play. I listened to it, which I think helped. Okay. And what Oscar Wilde have you read, if any? None. Unless we None. read one for one of Doloff's classes. I don't think we did. No, because... No. Mm-mm. You never read The Picture of Dorian Gray in high school? Nope. I have it on my shelf. Wow. I haven't read it. Wow. I'll talk about that later because um, this reminded me that I just really like him. I think he's really. That's great. Yeah, he's one of the best kind of classics in in my humble opinion. Um, and I just like reading plays, you know. It's a really good break for the brain. Yes, it is. You know who's the best playwright? Who? Nanny Planker. Nanny Planker. I think about Nanny's plays all the time. And I'm like, okay. I think part of the reason plays are so entertaining to read, I mean, obviously we all love watching plays too, but I think part of the reason they're so entertaining to read is because it's with it just being dialogue it's like so like it's just it feels so much quicker and it feels so much like character centered Mm -hmm. um and only the most important plot information is given Mm -hmm. and I feel like to be a good playwright you have to just be really good with dialogue so I'm not surprised someone like Annie is also good at writing plays because like if her dialogue is good in fiction then she just put that into a play and ditched the rest of you know the narrative building of course it's going to be great like if I if someone who was bad at dialogue was like I'm going to write a play I'd be like don't do that and you'd be surprised how many writers are bad at dialogue like just a lot a lot of the people who we went to school with couldn't do dialogue in a natural way. But also a lot no. of people who we went to school with like kind of couldn't have conversations with other people. And that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much the tea. <laughs> Oops. Oopsies. No, that's so real. And I think there's honestly nothing worse than bad dialogue. Yeah. It's, I would almost rather you have no dialogue at all than. Yep. Um, because have bad, bad, bad dialogue will just pull you right out. Mm-hmm. You'll be like, that sounds weird. I was reading something the other day that had really shitty dialogue. And I was like, what the fuck? Now I can't remember what it was. But it was like, remember that? rule Ellery taught us that would like why would you ever have characters say hi mm-hmm. um especially as their like first introduction mm-hmm. and I think it was something like that and I was like 
okay like that was stupid like I didn't like that the writer did that um and that kind of goes back to what I was talking about with plays like every single line is important to the plot yep and I like that I love that um do you want to go first I'll go first e. play play so this is Beckett's first play, I'm pretty sure. And the audiobook of it was literally two hours long. And I was like, wow, that's insanely short. Um, it's, it's only, sorry, did you hear that? That was my tummy. Hey, be quiet. I fed you soup today. <laughs> um, so it's only a two-act play which is interesting. Okay, so the premise of it is there's two guys and they go by, they have like actual names, but they go by, or at least they call each other Dee Dee and Gogo. And they're meeting at this tree. And by like what they're saying, it seems like they've, like one of them is like, haven't we met here before? And the other one's like, no, of course we haven't. Today's the first time we're meeting at this tree. And it kind of seems like that's maybe not the case. Um, and so they're waiting for, blah, blah, blah. can you believe it guys? They're waiting for Godot. What? Wild, insane. Anyways, so they're waiting and, you know, two other guys come. Um, I think it's a guy who's going to sell, um, his slave or something like that. And they both come and they talk for a little bit. And then they leave and then a boy comes and was like, I was sent to tell you guys that he's not coming today, but he's surely coming tomorrow. And then they're like, okay, well, we're going to go home. And the, if you were watching the show, the curtain would close and they wouldn't leave. They would still stay on stage. And then the curtain opens to the next day and they're waiting at the tree again. And they run into the same guy selling the same slave, but like they're like they don't remember. I think one is one of the guys is now blind and the other one like can't talk or something like that. And um they real it's just real bizarre. They like the guys don't remember seeing them the day before. And then the boy comes again and is like, he's not coming today, but he's surely coming tomorrow. So it like repeats. But then that's, you know, the curtain closes again with them still standing on stage, even though they said that they were going to leave. So I think he's like trying to repeat the days. But weird things happen when the days repeat, it seems like. Um And a lot of their conversations are weird. It's very fast paced. I think if Beckett does anything, he does things like just keep talking, just keep things moving, just keep like splur as much as you can out, keep the audience distracted, keep them thinking about something. Um, and like I said, the things that they talk about are like bizarre. Like there's a part where um, one of the guys, truthfully, I can't tell their I like couldn't tell which one was which from their voices. 
Um, but one of them's like really, really hungry. And the other one's like, oh, I have carrots and I have turnips. And he's like, I want a carrot. And he bites into it. And obviously, because I listen to audiobook, you hear him like, and he's like, oh, that's a, that's not a carrot. That's a turnip. It's like, like just a bizarre thing for them to be like talking about. And then he's like digging through his bag, looking for the carrot. Um, and this is like, this really made me think about audiobooks, especially audiobooks for like, plays or when I listened to part of A Court of Thorns and Roses it almost felt very theatrical like she was running through the woods at one part and you can like hear her like huffing and puffing and the the branches and the leaves swaying and moving and all that stuff and like obviously when you're reading a play you have a lot of those sound bites kind of you know like it would be like the one guy was trying to take his shoe off and he was grunting. And if you were reading the play, it would probably say like grunts with effort or something like that. But it's just so interesting that when you listen to an audiobook, you kind of just have that. And you almost don't know for an audiobook for a play, you almost don't know like what is actually part of the play, which makes it trippy in a way to think about um and it, I mean it is cool because you can actually like see it happening in almost a way that you don't see the reading of a regular book as an audiobook because when you're when you have like a regular book for an audiobook you're getting everything you're getting description of scenery and all that but, like, you don't really have that in place. Sometimes you do. But if there was that in this audiobook, I didn't. It it didn't really have it. Um, it was really just the characters talking and their grunts and their, you know, the sounds of what they were doing, which was really interesting. And it makes me think a lot about, I don't know, like, different different ways that we can perform books I guess um I also think it's so interesting that this is Beckett's first and like it I was reading up on it a little bit and it was never performed in like a big theater it was always like tiny theaters all around um and I guess for like a two act play of two men just like waiting at a tree, that makes perfect sense that it wouldn't be performed everywhere. But I don't know. It's just kind of bizarre to think of Beckett. Like this was definitely absurd and weird. But again, like I've read Not I. And is the play the one where they're like on the stage and there's like the pile or something? Okay. And I've read in that the one. They're in what? They're, I mean, it's. It, I think it changes how, how they do it, but they're, it's usually people's heads coming out of like an urn. Did we see that? Did we watch it in Cecilia's class freshman year? I think we did. Yeah, okay. and uh, that's my favorite. It's so good. Um, so I've, again, that one and not I. Like so absurd, so wild, so like, almost like take your breath away um 
And this play was just like kind of, it wasn't plain, but it was just so different from what I'm used to from him. It was so less abstract, I guess. Um, so it was kind of weird and different to like hear it performed, I guess. Um, did I like it? Yeah, I liked it. I think it was okay. It didn't like compare to what I know of Beckett or what I enjoy of Beckett. But I do think it was interesting to kind of delve into this new thing. Um, would I tell people to read it or listen to it? Yeah, because it's so short. And it's just, again, it's just like something bizarre. Like I've kind of been thinking about it for the last three days since I like finished it. I'm kind of like, what the frig? very the weird thing is it feels very european it feel it felt very like almost british in a way like um it felt like good omens you know what i mean how there's like a, a good like back and forth always there it's like the dialogue was very like back and forth Mind it reminds you of like a like a ping pong match kind of thing, um. Which always makes me f it it feels very British to me in a weird way, and yeah, I think that's about all I have to say about that. Honestly, um, I'm looking it up because Oscar Wilde stuff feels very English as well mm -hmm. in a different way um I I think that Beckett feels kind of like that almost like absurdist British style and Wilde is more of that like classic British style mm -hmm. and it's just weird because Ireland is so different from England when you really when it really like boils it down to it so you'd think that you'd think first of all that Beckett and Wilde would have some overlap stylistically which they don't but then you'd also think that neither of them would sound English right I'm looking it up because basically the, everybody was Catholic in Ireland, right? Mm -hmm. The British came um, to take over and they wanted everybody to be Protestant. And so a lot of people were raised Protestant in Ireland, even if they were of Irish descent. Um, and that sort of has to do with like the colonization of Ireland. But the Irish culture is Catholic. So that's why I mentioned that. I found out the other day that Catholic people weren't even allowed into Trinity, which is where I go to school and it is where both Oscar Wilde and Beckett went. They weren't allowed into Trinity until 1976. So only British people and Protestants, only Protestants could go before that, which means that Samuel Beckett and Oscar Wilde both had to be Protestant. That's insane. Or at least not Catholic. Mm -hmm. And so 
I'm wondering if that has to do with like I'm glad that Ireland can claim them now and I'm glad that both of these guys are remembered as being Irish mm-hmm. um but I wonder if their style has to, slightly to do with like the colonization of the of the English and the fact that they were not raised Irish Catholic yep um so that's just kind of interesting to think about um yeah, I looked up also while you were talking. I looked up play. There's not a lot of stage direction. The only oh. stage direction in play is lighting, actually. Um, which is interesting. So I bet I bet waiting for Godot is the same. Mm-hmm. Um in that like what you were saying like it'll have like when they grunt which is probably like written in but otherwise it doesn't have like um descriptions of the the scenery I guess you know what would be interesting and I don't know if we're actually like qualified to do this but why not let's do it we should like look at plays from like different famous playwrights and see how they do things differently because clearly if Beckett doesn't have a lot of stage direction a he wants to keep things vague but also he has to put a lot of trust into his actors when he writes in you know one of the guys is going to take off his shoe and you know he's he's obviously you keep reading it and he's struggling to take off his shoe like pages later he's still taking off his shoe you know what I mean yeah yes you got to have a lot of faith in your actor to be like okay I don't need to tell them how to do this so right. We should have right. a bonus episode where we go through and kind of analyze playwrights and be like, who does that? Who doesn't do that? Who cares more about the scene? Who cares more about the character? Blah 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 blah. It's it that's really interesting. And I think the other thing that would be interesting to compare is if they wrote novels in addition to plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because Beckett is a playwright through and through, and he probably was an actor in a way and was a director in a way because of that so he he maybe had that level of trust or it just wasn't a second nature to him to um to do it whereas Oscar Wilde is a novelist as well as a playwright and throughout the play he has really specific stage directions Mm -hmm. and so he'll even be like so-and-so said melancholy like with a tone of melancholy which like you know if he wrote it he would have been describing that as well like if he wrote as a novel I mean right rather than just trusting that the actor would read the sentence and sort of understand Mm -hmm. that's what they should be doing um and he has a lot more like movement written into for like how people should move about the room and you know and I think that also has a lot to do with like obviously waiting for Godot is a very limited set yeah and the importance of being earnest is a pretty involved set um in that it's just like a Victorian Victorian parlors and like stuff like that but yeah that's a really good idea Riz I like that we'll have Nanny on again Nanny, she loved that. 
I love Nan. Me too. Um, yeah, so the other one thing I'll say to sort of bridge the two is the importance of being earnest takes place in London, which I found kind of curious because I was also kind of like upset in a way that it didn't take place in Dublin. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted it to. I don't think the picture... Um, the picture of Dorian Gray also takes place in London. Um, and so that just brings in all these conversations as to like, maybe they wouldn't have been accepted as as widely if it had taken place in Dublin and it had been Irish people because they were so like discriminated against at the time. Um, but I was trying to look it up and it looks like Waiting for Godot, it never says where it takes place. No, it just feels... It's just like the countryside somewhere. Like they're literally just standing by a tree. So it could have been Ireland, mm -hmm. you know. Um, also, one more thing I'll say about that. Didi and Gogo sounds like something a white person would call their grandparents. It's also like the fact that it's Godot. I'm like, you got Didi, Gogo, and then Godot. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Come on. And yeah, Godot, they're all such weird names. Like, I wonder why he did that. Let me see if I can find what the other names were because they were also weird hold on like this the go go the guy who's like selling his slave also that's just the slavery is weird is mm -hmm. it like is it a poc or is it an, another irish person like that's something i'm curious about too. i don't know and i don't like, the thing is, when I was listening to it, it took me a second to realize that that's what was happening. Uh-huh. I just thought, like, some man... Okay, so the... Pozo, P-O-Z-Z-O, and Lucky. Pozo and Lucky? Yeah, those are the other names. And I don't think the boy ever has a name. Isn't that okay. bizarre? That's weird as hell, he was on some kind of drugs, Samuel Beckett. I, I love it. Good for him. Um, that's fun. I love audiobooks. Me too. I think they're fun. I think they're cool. I think they're fresh. Uh, yeah. So I read The Importance of Being Earnest. I got this at an Irish flea market, so I'm going to keep it for, um, it's a Penguin Classic Edition too, which I love. Penguin, old Penguin Classics. Let's see what this is actually from. 1994, so it's not that old, um, but still fun. I actually really like this book. I'm not surprised. Um, so, famously, Oscar Wilde's Dorian, the picture of Dorian Gray, is one of, if not my favorite, classic um rivaled only by maybe Madame Bovary because she serves cunt but I love the picture of Dorian Gray and I read it in high school and upon reading this book I don't want to teach high school I want to teach college but upon reading this book I actually think that this may be better for a high schooler to read than the picture of Dorian Gray and I'm honestly like a little surprised that they don't have high schoolers read this more often instead um first of all yeah it's one of those classic like Victorian 
plays like you can definitely you get a real sense of 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 what everything looks like um you already feel like you kind of know what these kinds of characters like they're all like kind of higher class victorian folks a funny thing i learned is that the the like tagline of the play when it came out was like a trivial play for serious people uh which i think is really cute and it was, I guess, at the time, his most well-received and most famous work. I guess it wasn't until even after he died that the picture of Dorian Gray gained the popularity it did, which I'm going to get into his kind of life and, and, and subsequent death later, because it actually kind of has to do with the play. Um, but yeah, this is a fun, it's silly little play about a guy who we're first introduced to as being named Jack. And Jack sort of lives a double life where he he has like an estate that he has to manage and be very serious. And when he's there, his, his name is John, nicknamed Jack. And then he still wants to engage in debauchery as a young Victorian man would. Um, he goes to the city to be earnest. Um, he names himself Ernest. And when he goes back to his country estate, he, and they're like, where have you been all these weeks? Um, he's like, oh, well, I was checking on my brother Ernest. So it's kind of like a fucking Mr. Noodle and his brother, Mr. Noodle from uh, Sesame Street. <laughs> that he's like, both Ernest and Jack are the same dude. One of them is living this high society Victorian life. The other is a bit of a playboy. Now, City Jack, which is Ernest, um, falls in love with a girl and proposes to her. Just keep that in mind. You should also know that he's best buds with this guy named Algeron. Um, and so they're together as Ernest and Algeron and 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 then uh, with the girlfriend and they're in the city and da 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 but then Aldron kind of has his foot in both worlds as well. And so he accidentally falls in love with Jack's ward. Um, and he tells the ward that he is earnest. So now, and then he proposes to her. So now you have two women who think they're engaged to some bitch named Ernest and Ernest just, just does not exist. Um, mind you, meanwhile, Jack has told all the people at his country estate, including his ward, that Ernest, his brother, is it has died. <laughs> and so the ward is like, no, he's not dead because he's here and he just proposed to me. And then Jack's girlfriend, who also knows him as Ernest, comes and is like, no, Ernest proposed to me. And so then it's all revealed that Jack is Ernest and Algeron is Algeron and Ernest never exists. So whatever her name is, is married to, is engaged to Jack and the other girl is engaged to Algeron. But then... Both girls are sort of like, actually, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Like, you guys lied to us. And that was pretty shitty. And that's a very kind of 
insane description of the play, but that's kind of what happens. And it's in many ways about like reputation and this idea of living a double life. And so a lot of people think that this was Oscar Wilde because Oscar Wilde was gay and it was illegal to be gay at the time. A lot of people think that this was kind of like an allegory for for that experience, whereas like he would be in one place and he'd be straight and um, sort of high society, this, that, and the other. And then he would go to his alternate life, his city life, and he would be gay and engage in like the underground sort of queer counterculture there. So the play gets put up in London um and when I don't know if it was the first night the play was out or just like it, the first time the play was out some douchebag outs Oscar Wilde and is like yeah this play is about living a double life you know who's living a double life Oscar Wilde that bitch is gay he gets arrested for being gay and sent to a labor prison this is a fact I never knew about Oscar Wilde. He gets sent to a labor camp. And that was basically the end of his career and, and his life. He never recovered from that, even when he got out of the labor camp. Um, he sort of went to go live in exile. And he is one of those tragic literary characters that never knew the success that he would have later on because nobody would associate with him because he was gay during the Victorian period. And then by the time people started to read Dorian Gray and by the time it became a classic and by the time it became um, a queer icon, he was long gone. And so I just think that's really sad and that makes me sad. Um, but I think that's a really interesting thing about the play. But all in all, like the writing in this is really good. It's really um, witty. It's fun. He, I don't know about you guys, but like, I really like like Victorian literature. Like I have a grand old time reading Little Miss Jane Austen. Like, I think that's just a fun period of time to, to hang out in. And so I had a good time reading this book. I can also see that this play would probably be really fun to watch um, in the same way that like Jane Austen adaptations are, are fun to watch. There is a movie of this um, starring Colin Firth as Ernest, I think as Jack. Um, so that could be kind of fun, but yeah, he says like really profound shit sometimes too. Like I'll just share like this one is. Um... Hello. Oh, Algeron, this is just a quote I really liked. He says, all women become like their mothers. That is their tragedy. No man does. That's his. Which I thought was interesting. That it's like a tragedy for women to become like their mothers, but it's a tragedy for men not to become like their mothers. Like that, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of slay. Um, the other quote that I never knew was from this is Marissa. I don't know if you've heard this quote before, but um, where it goes, 
I never travel without my diary. One should always have something sensational to read on the train. Um, I feel like that's kind of a famous quote, and I never knew it was from this. And I just think that's so cunty slay. Gwendolyn says that. Who? I'm sorry, I kept forgetting her name earlier. Gwendolyn is engaged to Jack Ernest, and Cecily is engaged to Algeron Ernest. Um, but I just think that's so funny. Like, yes, Queen. That's me looking back at my like Instagram stories after a drunk night. Like, one should always have something sensational to read on the train. Aren't those both Shakespearean names? Gwendolyn and Cecily? Is that from, um... What's the one where the two girls dress up as men so that they can go through the forest? Is that... Is that... Is it Much Ado About Nothing? No, it's... Comedy of... There's Comedy of Errors, Much Ado About Nothing. It's not Twelfth Night. Mm -mm. Maybe it is Much Ado. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, because this had a, like a Victorian Shakespeare vibe to it. Let's see. Shakespeare characters sorted alphabetically. I don't see Gwendolyn. I was positive that Gwendolyn was a Shakespeare name. It sounds like it would be. But maybe also it's another one of those things. Like while I was reading this play, I was like, I definitely never read this before, but it sounds really familiar. And I wonder if the importance of being earnest is just so um, ingrained in our culture now that it's one of those things that everybody kind of just has random knowledge of, but doesn't actually know where it came from. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. you know how like so many sayings we say are from Shakespeare, but we don't even like know it. Yes. Like, I wonder if the importance of being earnest is kind of the same thing. Cecily Neville as the Duchess of York is a principal character in Shakespeare's play, The Tragedy of King Richard III. Richard III? Mm-hmm. I do like Richard III. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Very crazy. Um. So yeah, that's plays. That's some Irish plays for you guys. Did you like it? I liked it. I will say, I feel like we've been getting better at staying on topic. Me too. Well, we did just gossip for a full hour beforehand. That's true. At least we get it over with before this time, though. Nowadays, yeah, you don't have to edit it out. Mm-hmm. Also, can- shout out to my friend Lexi, who I used to work with but don't work with anymore, but she's still like my best friend. Um, she loves Oscar Wilde and thinks he's the hottest thing. That's really fucking funny. Mm-hmm. 
That's hilarious. Mm -hmm. There's a very sexy, I guess, if you think he's hot, statue of him in Dublin where he's like lounging. Ooh, take a picture of it and send it to me. I'll send it to her. I'll, I'll take a picture of it when I when next time I walk by. Um, that little fruitcake, Oscar, mm-hmm. so gay. Um, yeah, so that's sad that he went to labor camp, yeah. labor prison. Jesus fucking Christ! He didn't deserve that. Um, we have a. I think we have something named after him at Trinity, but the theater is named after Beckett. Which no. is, um they love Good for him. you Beckett. They we love, love Beckett. And I love him. He crazy. Like it's a freak. Who else went to Trinity? The guy that wrote um Gilligan's No. Finnegan's Wake and Dubliners. Um James Joyce hate james joyce hate james joyce sorry about it and then the guy that wrote um oh what is that book with like the lilliputians and gulliver's travels okay the guy that wrote Gulliver. Um, what's his fucking name jonathan swift is yes his name is yes. jonathan swift jonathan swift um and then bram stoker of course um Lots of little freaks, honestly. I hate James Joyce. I hate James Joyce, dude. And I say that, and like, you should not say that here because these bitches love him. But I'd be saying that. I'm like, all my homies hate James Joyce. So mm-hmm. sorry. Honestly, probably one of the worst people I've ever met in my life loves James Joyce. And I feel like that's telling. And yeah, if ask around the worst person in your life loves james joyce wait what was his favorite james joyce if you don't mind me asking do you know yes is it dubliners yep that's fucked dude he tried to get me to read it and i'm like this song i'm not having a good time didn't we have to read it in sam's studio or did we read something else of james joyce i don't remember I don't remember either. I know we have the only time I remember trying to read it was when he like gave me his special copy. Oh, cry me a river. What a freak. (laughs) And I literally read like the first three stories and I was like, this ain't it. I don't like it. Yeah, I I just don't. Maybe I just don't get it. Maybe I just don't feel the magic. No, I'm sorry. It's not good. And he's another one who, like, didn't even live in Ireland for that long. And people kind of forget that. Um, but at least he actually wrote about Ireland, uh, which is not Oscar Wilde and Beckett maybe cannot say. Although, let's just pretend that all of Beckett's stuff does take place in Ireland. Like, if he doesn't tell you where it takes place, then then it's Irish. Purgatory. Yeah. And that's on period um what are we reading next week next week we're doing true crime another one thank you this is our second true crime no third second third is it our third 
Well, because I read, did one of us read In Cold Blood? I read In Cold Blood. Okay, no. So then we won't, this is only our second, because that's when I read Murder in the Bayou. I've also read In Cold Blood, so that's why I got confused and was like, did I read that for the podcast? But I just read that on my own, I guess. Oh my God, everyone leave me alone. Who's bothering you? Both of my parents. Tell them. They've both texted me separately and been like, when are you coming home? Take a deep breath. Can I live? Ask them that. Say, can I live? Can I live? Um, what are you reading for True Crime? I'm reading Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John. I don't know how to say his last name. Brent, maybe? B-E-R-E-N-D-T. I have to I tell know. you, I got that okay. deeply confused with the guy that wrote Devil in the White City. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. Devil in the White City sells like crazy. By what's his name? Eric Eric Larson. Eric Larson. Um and what I forget, what made you specifically want to read this? I've always wanted to read this one. I don't I think I heard about it on I think I was looking through a list of true crime books that read like fiction. And this was one of them. And I was like, I don't know why this book looks insane. And I want to read it. I was looking up. I probably should have read it when you read your murder in the bayou because they're both south. South. Um. I do, so I'll preface, okay, so I looked it up because I was trying to figure out what the themes of your book are, and I saw this weird quote that after the book came out, Savannah, tourism for the city of Savannah, like, skyrocketed. Creepy. And so then I started thinking about death tourism, and I said slay. Um, So I'm reading... The Burning of Bridget Cleary by Angela Burke, which is about a woman who was, like, burned as a witch, basically, like, not that long ago in Ireland, like, in the 1800s. And I was going to talk about that because, like, the I, the concept of, like, burning of witches is something that, like, similarly to death tourism, like, I feel like people, like, forget that that was a real person that got killed um so that'll be interesting to read like I think in a way both of our books have to do with dark tourism or like mm-hmm. they're both used for um tourism in a way which I never knew that about I'd seen your book before but I never knew that about it me either it's just weird. People are just strange. Like, I know people go to Savannah because it's haunted, but, like, I guess I didn't really think it was any specific crimes. Like, I just thought it was, like, generally haunted. I didn't even know it was haunted. Yeah. It's, like, giving New Orleans. Okay. Yeah. Um. Real spooky. The... 
What did, Shane and Ryan went there at one point. I can't remember what they did though. But that's the tea on that. That's what we're going to be doing. Um, and I might pair my book with also a little tiny book I got about the the first witch that was ever burned in Ireland. Cool. Um, and I actually went to the bar, walked past the bar in Kilkenny that she like owned. Um, so that's fun. We love witches. We do love witches. So that's next week. Can't wait. We'll see you there. Bye. That was stupid.